Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Psalm 135, 15 through 18. Well, welcome once again to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also resident on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined live and in person, not live, live at the time, uh, <laughs> but in person uh, by Dr. Joe Boot for a special Christmas episode of this podcast. Glad Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> Merry Christmas to all. And Joe, we're... Uh, so say all of us. So, so say we all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, that's a different thing. <laughs> no, I've been watching too much Christmas Carol. I've been watching too much Christmas Battlestar Galactica, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, we're, uh, we're here today uh, as the, uh, the passage that I read from the Psalms attests. Uh, Christmas... Uh, perhaps more than, uh, than ordinary, an ordinary time of year, recalls to our minds questions of worship. And this is, uh, this is relevant to our conversation today in particular, because you, uh, and th- this is not headline news, this is a, a little bit uh, under the bridge, but it's current that uh, you, wrote, you wrote an article recently on uh, Diwali and de-Christianization. And the, uh, the thing that prompted it, uh, and I'll get you to tell us more about it, there were two things. Um, one was the, uh, the, the election or the affirmation appointment of Rishi Sunak as the, the first non-Christian uh, Prime Minister of England, and his, uh, his celebration of Diwali at, uh, at the PM residence at 10 Downing Street in the UK. Uh, the other was a, uh, a recent British census from the uh, the office of national statistics and that's revealed that, uh, that for the first time fewer than half of britain's population identifies themselves as christian uh so i guess uh to di- to dive in i'm, I'm curious what uh, what are, what are they instead mm-hmm. well as you said the office of national Statist- statistics published uh, a portion of its most recent uh, census results in the United Kingdom, mm. um, and they're going to be releasing, you know, parts of it over uh, the coming months, different parts of it. Um, but it was particularly interesting uh, that the, you know, the, the questions, at least currently, still include questions about, you know, professed religion, and um, historically, much like Canada and much like the United States. You've seen, despite declining church numbers um, or declining numbers of people who would be considered regularly worshipping in the life of the church, you still saw high numbers of people identifying with Christianity as their religion. It was, mm-hmm. you know, part of what we might call the the remnants of Christian culture. You might call it nominal Christianity or whatever. And there was still a percentage of people who would be found in church when you're hatched, matched, and dispatched. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, the, the, these results, which are not altogether shocking because it is sort of following a general trajectory, found that for the first time, um, the British public, um, less than half of them were making an identification of themselves with, with Christianity. And the major area of growth, um, statistically, was those identifying as no religion. Now, of course, hmm. we know from our reformational standpoint, and most of our listeners would be well aware, that there is no such thing. That's when somebody right. says they're no religion, um, they, they are, they, they're not without a worldview. They're not without a, um, a religious perspective upon reality, but they're just not identifying with one of the major world religions. That's right. They, everyone has a God concept. Which is precisely why it's the fruit of secularism. So uh, this is the way secularism likes to frame itself um, by asking a question about what uh, you know whether you're religious. The assumption, of course, is being made that the secular humanist is not religious, um, uh, but but uh, is in fact sort of occupying some kind of neutral territory. We 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 know that's the sleight of hand of secularism to actually become the official state religion, if you will, um, whilst relativizing um, other faith commitments and claiming that it, it itself is non-religious. So, so we understand that the, the, the inherent bias of the question and, and, the, and, the, and the problem of the way the question is framed. But nonetheless, the point is that fewer and fewer people are identifying themselves uh, with Christianity. And the major area of growth is, is no religion. This We've talked about it before this radical spiritual uprootedness that has taken place within Western society across the West. It's not just, this happens to be the, the census in Britain, but the same is true here in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, there's the same process going on in the United States. Um, there's a radical aimlessness, sense of meaninglessness, spiritual uprootedness, no, no longer uh, identifying with something substantive. And of course, you've got all this younger generation now coming through, who are you know, 18, 19, 20, filling in the census um, questions for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is, in that sense, a predictable trajectory. Um, but it is obviously concerning because the, the, the other area of, of growth, less statistically significant but worthy of note, was the growth in people identifying as pagan. Pagan. Uh, yeah, it's essentially huh. identifying with some sort of folk pagan religion, some form of witchcraft or occultism or whatever, which is interestingly and again not surprisingly growing. And then, of course, it's completely unremarkable to talk about the growth of Islam, mainly by right. a combination of immigration and birth rates, right. um, yep. increasing the 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 size of the Muslim population in Britain's major cities, particularly. Um, which brings with it its own challenge, but that—that's basically um, the, uh, the 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 first uh, area of significance of this census result. But what I thought was fascinating, and the reason I ended up writing an article on it uh, in in December, was that um, it, it sort of coincided within a month, basically, of Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. becoming mm -hmm. the British Prime Minister after a sort of circular firing squad event in the Tory party in England, you know, with Liz Truss lasting a couple of weeks. Yeah. The Interestingly, what happened there is that actually the Tory party members, that is your grassroots ordinary people who are members of the Tory party who get to elect their leader, 
voted for a genuine conservative. The elites in the party and, of course, the elites in the the civil service, the bureaucracy and in the financial sector in London uh, didn't like her, didn't like her um, small state um, mm. pro-growth um, uh, policies. And uh, so she was shot down in no time. And the, the, the MPs, the conservative MPs pick was a more establishment figure. A sort of occupying the centrist ground, yeah. um, the status quo, really, um, Rishi Sunak. And he happens to be a Hindu mm -hmm. and professes Hinduism. And um, a month before these statistics were released, he was celebrating Diwali at, uh, at 10 Downing Street, as you said in our, in our introduction. And so yeah. the sort of coalescing of those two events sort of prompted me to to write something a bit more substantial on, on, the, on the issue of de-Christianization in the nation. Right. And uh, it's uh, you, you mentioned in the article about uh, Prime Minister Sunak that on, on ma matters of policy, like you would, would be largely in agreement. He's, uh, he's, a, he's the head of the Conservative Party, the Tory party. Uh, thing, things like Brexit that you mentioned in particular, fiscal responsibility. He's got, uh, he's got mainline conservative views on these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've also identified that, especially, uh, especially in the UK, there is a, a deep, rich, long uh, heritage of Christian assumptions, Christian commitments that are really bred in the bone of British constitutionalism. Like the, the types of ceremonies that are observed to begin with, the form of them, the language that's used, uh -huh. they're, they're explicitly Christian, uh, more so than... American or Canadian, uh, in many cases. Mm -hmm. So it gets uh, it gets back to uh, as we mentioned earlier this this question of worship. We really have a real life illustration being played out uh, in in front of our eyes about the uh, the inescapable fact that life is religion, as uh, as you've articulated time and again. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems unlikely in practice, but it seems like you've got now with a with a non-Christian head of state, maybe he's not head of state, but uh, <laughs> a non-Christian prime minister, yeah. uh, the highest elected official, you have the logical possibility, at least, of a fundamental social-religious identity crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a um, couple of thoughts on that. First, you, you're right that he occupies the political mainstream. Um, what's happened to conservatism in Britain not quite to the extreme of, of Canadian, the collapse of Canadian conservatism, which is mm. really just a form of progressivism now. But nonetheless, British conservatism has been heavily watered down to a kind of social democracy. And so assumptions around the welfare state um, increasingly, and when I say the party now, I mean the MPs. So again, mm. as I said, the, the, the sort of actual members within the country would still be much more constitutionally, uh, conservatively originalist in their thinking, but not the elites. Um, so he occupies that sort of social democracy, assumption of a big state, um, you know, state intervention. Um, you know, of course, he was the, you know, Rishi Sunak was the chancellor when um, all the furlough and the handouts were being uh, uh, done in the UK and so on. So he's... Mm. Yes, we would agree in some respects. So um, he was surprisingly for 
um, Brexit. Hmm. Um, I say surprisingly, maybe I shouldn't say that, but it, it, you, well, you wouldn't have picked him out of a crowd to be a pro-Brexiteer. Gotcha. Um, but he was because he's interested in British national sovereignty. Um, and um, yes, he wants to be a, a safe pair of hands. He would argue that he wants to be economically conservative and that the current situation of high tax, um, uh, bigger state, state intervention is a, a transitional phase to being a much smaller state just to get us through you know, high inflation and the growth of interest rates and all of that. Um, those things are rarely true, but um, that that would be the lip service. So, yes, you can say that. Well, the way you've been articulating it is that you know, does Rishi Sunak represent some kind of existential risk to mainstream conservatism in in Britain? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, does he? And we'll come to this in a moment. Does he represent a risk to the sort of Christianized character of the of the British Constitution? No. Right. Um, but. Does he represent part of the existential crisis of our culture? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the relativization of religious conviction, um, the 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 notion that it barely formed a blip on the radar, beyond the fact that there was a, and I think an appropriate celebration of the fact that we had a the first Asian prime minister because um, Rishi Sunak is Indian by background. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a, a real plus and a positive because generally speaking, um, uh, the Indians who, in uh, British Indians in the UK today, especially of the generation of his parents and who, and of course, raised him in England, um, were much more, uh, much more constitutionally conservative, uh, inst- intuitively conservative than m- the average uh, white Brits growing up in a major city mm. in 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 Britain, and you've also got Suella Braverman in the UK too, who's the um, Home Secretary, kind of a, a a very rapid rise, and she's got real conservative instincts, and she's a Buddhist. Hmm. Um, interesting that uh, it would be good to see a, a, a Christian uh, British Indian come through, um, but at the but at the moment we've got you know a Hindu as the Prime Minister and and um, a, a Buddhist as the Home Secretary, but you can see how that does um, c- continue to relativize a fundamental religious commitment, and you mentioned the forms, the the liturgy, the structure, the prayers, the anthems, the the very nature of the British Constitution mm-hmm. um, that is distinctly Christian. I mean, it would be a surprise to some that, um, you know, by law, schools are still supposed to have a Christian act of worship um, uh, every week. Mm-hmm. Um, not a Buddhist act of worship or a Hindu act of worship or, or an Islamic act of worship, but a Christian act of worship um, because of the the constitutionally Christian character of the nation. You mentioned our, you know, the head of state, of course, is the king in right. in both Britain and Canada. I had to catch myself there. Yeah, good catch. <laughs> um, and uh, we've got a, we've got a coronation coming up next yeah. year, which will be of a distinctly Christian character, just as people saw. I mean, four billion people around the world watched the Queen's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no hint of Hinduism or Buddhism in that. Uh, and it wasn't a meaningless ceremony, and neither will the coronation be a meaningless ceremony. So the question then becomes, how can a uh, professing Hindu prime minister participate wholeheartedly and um, 
without a seriously divided mind mm-hmm. um, in those kinds of constitutional activities, those state events, even remembrance services that we just had in November right. are of a distinctly Christian character. So... In, so, constitutional risk to the nation, no, but but reflecting the existential crisis of the nation and the fact that it was no more than a blip, there was an appropriate, as I say, recognition. This is a, an important milestone. It, I think it's a fantastic thing that we have British Indians participating at the highest level of political life in the UK. And on the conservative side, which is very interesting, hmm. that the, the bulk are, uh, are as I say, um, in, intuitively conservative. So, I, I really welcome that. The challenge is that the when you start having Diwali at 10 Downing Street, mm-hmm. um, in the mind of the public, you are radically relativizing the Christian commitment of the nation. You're relativizing uh, religious belief, which is exactly, of course, what secularism is really about, uh, relativizing other commitments to establish itself as the state religion. And um, Rishi Sunak himself has, has um, described... Uh, England as a, a Britain as a as a secular country, which actually isn't true. Right. Um, it's not true constitutionally. Um, it's uh, even to call it a secular society or or a secular state. Um, to call it a secular state is completely ina- in- inaccurate. To say that it's a secular society is only a partial truth, because um, society, of course, is made up of all um, multiple elements. And um, secularism is certainly, or secular humanism, mixed in with this kind of relativistic paganism, has certainly become the de facto uh, uh, leading. It's the leading edge now of Western culture, and it's true in Britain as well. It's become the the religious perspective that is giving direction to the development of of cultural life. Is this this secular uh, neo pagan? Um, vision of of reality so there's an existential crisis there there's a there there is a religious crisis there there's a spiritual uprootedness there that then gets passed on to the nation uh, there's a uh, it, it, it adds a, another layer of confusion because your highest elected representative your you're the head of your government mm-hmm. not the head of state mm-hmm. but the head of the government uh, the civil government um does not support the constitutional character of the nation um and uh you know we can go on to talk about why that isn't actually a big risk in rishi sunak's case right but your right to to notice doesn't this sort of smorgasbord approach you know represent and give us a very visual picture of the fact that life is religion and um we are we are we're in we're in a, a time in the West now of radical existential and religious crisis. Right, right. So, uh, germane to the point, but uh, off the beaten track just a little bit. Around Christmas, I know that uh, both yours and mine. Uh, one of our favorite things is to uh, to listen to or to view a performance of Handel's Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, which which includes that glorious phrase from Revelation, the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's got me thinking in light of everything that, uh, that you're describing here. Uh, Christian nationalism is a, uh, you know, in, in certain circles is becoming a major topic of conversation these days. Um, the question of Christian nations or a mere Christendom mm-hmm. and, 
I guess the the fundamental question is what uh, what is the proper relation uh, here and now of the state to God, not mm. church and state, but the mm. state in in direct accountability to God. Mm-hmm. Well. It's, it's important as you've done to to distinguish between a discussion about um, what is the ideal relationship of the institutional church to the state um, an interesting area of of uh, ambiguity there in the English const- British constitutional arrangement in the English constitutional arrangement particularly is that the prime minister still plays a role in the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury Right. So in the in the mm-hmm. in the case of Rishi Sunak, um, how does a professing Hindu um, have insight into the appropriate appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the the head of the Church of England? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there you there you've got the sort of the church state question, and that's that would be a, a subject for another program where we could have a and we we've discussed it before, but we could have a, a more fulsome discussion about church state relation. But you 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 ask a, I think a more fundamental, important question, which is the relationship of God to the nation, and especially for our, for our American listeners, church state uh, separation of jurisdiction, which is a really important uh, principle. Um, remember, in the United States, at the federal level. There is no establishment of any given church. It did happen at the state level, um, but it was not to happen at the federal level. There was not to be a uh, uh, the enforcement of any kind of coercion in the in the American system, which right. I think is Im- important, significant, and actually unbeknownst to to many, or at least it's not often. People aren't always immediately aware of it, but especially since 1688, there's been freedom in the United Kingdom as well. That's right. Um, even though there is a what we might call a, a, an establishment or a soft establishment, even there there's a distinction um, in the life of the Church of England between the authority and jurisdiction of the king in the nation and as a sort of figurehead or titular head of the church and the actual role or responsibility of um, uh, the head of state within the church, which cannot involve acting as a priest. So... That fundamental separation is vital, and we need to maintain it. Um, but when that distinction is maintained, people then often think, "Well, that means we can't have a Christian state. Mm-hmm. We can't have a Christian mm-hmm. nation because if we separate church and state, then and their jurisdiction and responsibility, then there's no such thing as a Christian nation." But actually, a Christian, the idea of a Christian nation or a Christian culture has nothing to do with. Uh, uh, church-state separation. Right. It has to do with the recognition of, excuse me, God's authority, in particular Christ's authority, over all spheres of life. And um, we, as you know, talk a great deal about sphere sovereignty Mm -hmm. and that vital scriptural principle that began to be, I think, most appropriately or, or more fully articulated in a coherent way by Abraham Kuyper and those that followed. And of course, my, my latest book, Ruler of Kings, um, it, it goes into great detail about the significance and the meaning of sphere sovereignty. But when we think about um, Christian culture or Christian nations, we're thinking about the, the, the every sphere of life in a given nation 
recognizing the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. That would be the family recognizing the authority of Christ, the church recognizing the authority of Christ and his word. Um, the vocations recognizing the authority of Christ, for example, in medicine or in law. But then in particular, for this discussion, civil government also recognizing and acknowledging the authority of Christ and his word. And wherever you have an acknowledgement of Christ's authority and his word in any sphere of life, there you see the manifest presence of the kingdom of God. However weak, however weak the church may be, uh, however um, new the family might be to the Christian faith and, and, and their growth in maturity, however young a, um, the, a civil government and, and, or a nation may even be constitutionally, um, or however ancient it may be, the degree to which Christ is recognized, God is recognized, his authority, his word, as having a binding authority over that sphere of life, there we can talk about Christian culture, there we can talk in terms of a country, in terms of a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I think we mean by a Christian culture or a Christian nation. The Bible certainly teaches a, a view of a biblical nationhood. Right. Uh, Israel um, is the paradigmatic example of a, a God-fearing nation. Uh, that has a, uh, a God-given constitution, uh, uh, the recognition of God's supremacy and the, and the, the, the sovereignty of his law. Um, and God very explicitly in Scripture tells us, for example, Paul reminds the kind of cosmopolitan Greeks um, who were uh, toying with all the notions of, um, uh, of, of, of political utopias. Remember in Acts 17, he says uh, that... Um, uh, Paul, Paul tells them that God um, established the boundaries of the nations right. so that yeah. they might reach out for him, even though he's not far from every one of us, so that actually nationhood is something that's ordained by God. He ordains it with Israel, and that meant or Israel, Israel needed borders to be a nation. That's right. So God had to define those borders. Um, and uh, the, and the, the thing about nationhood that's mentioned in Acts 17 is that nations have boundaries, <laughs> So if you, if you don't have a boundary, you don't have a nation. Um, and the whole idea of a republic, uh, a res publica, which is true of constitutional monarchies or constitutional republics, is that the state is a public thing. Uh, it's no longer a private thing of barons or lords uh, on a given territory with their own private law for a given area or even a king's star chamber. It becomes a completely a public affair for that territory. So... Um, the the reality of the, uh, the, the 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 jurisdiction of the the Lord Jesus Christ over um, uh, nations that God has ordained is what Scripture has in mind by an idea of biblical nationhood, and of course we see it culminating in the eschaton, where in the Book of Revelation we're told that because the gospel is spread throughout the nations, every tribe, every tongue. Every people, every nation yep. have been made a kingdom of priests unto God. From every tribe, tongue, people, nation, there is a kingdom of priests. And um, that means that nations are important in God's economy. So I would distinguish that, though, biblical nationhood uh, or Christian culture from the term nationalism. 
I think the difficulty with the term nationalism um, and the the danger of talking about a Christian nationalism over against, say, a, a, a new form of Christendom or a mere Christendom is that an, the ism on the end of nation there indicates an over-exaggeration. Yeah, it's an absolutizing uh, suffix. Yeah. yeah, it absolutizes the nation, and, and so the nationhood um, starts to become more important than the kingdom of God. And the only totalizing concept permitted in the Christian worldview um, and permitted anywhere in the Bible is not nationhood, it's not family, it's not even the institutional church. The only totalizing reality is the kingdom of God. It's the mm. rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over all the nations. Uh, as Revelation 1, 5 says, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's right. So we cannot elevate n uh, uh, biblical nationhood, that is a s submission to Christ's lordship by a given civil government, into a form of Christian nationalism, um, which begins to deify uh, the nation and st and starts to identify the nation somehow as the most important thing. Um, it's the kingdom of God that's the most important thing in all of the nations. Hmm. <clears throat> and this uh, this gets us back to uh, the again the que the question of government in its civil government and its relation to God, understanding that worship is something that is a basic human function. Everyone does it, and it, it plays itself out in every area of society. But based on all that you've said, it seems that the civil government really has a vested interest in the right worship of its citizens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the word liturgy actually means public work. Right. It doesn't mean a private yeah. practice. It means... Yeah. It doesn't it, mean order of service. No, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the um, worship, worthship, that which is of ultimate worth, is of concern to the nation. Um, and, of course, in the modern West, uh, what uh, is increasingly most important to civil governments is that um, the the worship, the worship due to God, is being transferred increasingly to the state. Uh, that the state becomes the provider is you know it's providence from cradle to grave it's welfare security um it's um it's 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 provision as it were which we saw of course in abundance in the last two or three years <laughs> which has wrecked economies across the across the western world yeah the bill's coming due with the, yeah the, the butcher's bill is due for printer printing billions of worthless uh, pieces of paper um and of course people are suffering for it but when you make the state your god and uh, the source of sovereignty, the, the, the state starts to think of itself not as um, uh, having a stewardship, a trust, an office under God, but starts to think of itself as ultimate sovereign, as the source of law, rather than simply acknowledging the normative law structure that God has for the state. It starts to believe itself to be the source of law. So instead of thinking, well, we have to positivize God's law, Instead, we are the source of new law, and then the, start, the state wants to begin redefining identity and human sexuality and family, and pre-political institutions start to disappear. Um, the, the modern Western state is increasingly concerned to relativize the claims of Christ, um, which is certainly germane to our topic, um, and to absolutize itself. And uh, that sort of what we might call a totalitarian direction of the society of the future, of, of uh, 
the religion of of um, organization, as it were, um, the 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 idea that the planners must organize our salvation in a hostile cosmos, you know, because once you dispense with the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the providence of God in history, and you view history as ultimately, um, the cosmos as ultimately godless and chaotic, then man must impose a kind of order on it um, to save uh, humanity mm -hmm. from itself and from the chaos that surrounds it threatening to crush us. So you see how basically worship um, ultimately is, is transferred, uh, often not so subtly, from God uh, to the state as the state starts to kind of occupy this messianic uh, role and claim that sort of a role for itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to jump in here. Uh, this is from your article on Diwali and dechristianization, but there are a couple of, a couple of scriptures that speak specifically to this question. Uh, they're from First uh, and Second Corinthians. First is First uh, Corinthians ten nineteen to twenty two. Paul writes, "What am I saying then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy?" Are we stronger than he? And the second uh, reading is from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, where Paul writes, For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? And I thought it was uh, very appropriate that you you included those two passages uh, because we we don't, especially in uh, a reformational tradition, we don't often use words or talk about the reality of demons. Mm -hmm. we, we talk about idolatry. Idolatry is everywhere. And we like to quote John Calvin that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, you know, the reality that when you offer worship uh, idolatrously, falsely, you're not uh, you're not neutral you're not offering neutral worship you're offering demonic worship mm -hmm. yeah absolutely the here we can talk about the only two kingdoms that there are the right. kingdom of darkness yeah. and the kingdom of light mm -hmm. and power in life um we cannot live without power in every aspect of our lives and it's either power from on high from by which we're endued by the holy spirit or it's power from below right which is the demonic realm and, uh, you know, if we go back to the Garden of God, um, the issue of our enslavement, of our alienation is tied fundamentally to being um, children of our father, the devil, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Jesus said well, to, to, the, to the Pharisees, because if we're in the grip of lies, the grip of idolatry, we're of our father, the devil, our spiritual father. Um, and uh, the, Paul talks about this being the spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience. And isn't it interesting that Paul juxtaposes there in 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Yeah. yeah. So he associates righteousness with God's law. Um, not some vague conception of our personal piety, um, but with God's law. And so 
there is a, a clear juxtaposition here that, that shouldn't escape us. This is, the, this is what we might call the religious antithesis. Um, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Yeah. And if we're not serving Christ, we're not just serving some um, uh, vague idea of ourselves right. or some vague concept of anything. We're actually serving the prince of darkness. And Paul mm -hmm. is unequivocal about that. And I mm -hmm. think that we, don't, we shouldn't be shy um, or squeamish about saying that that is the reality. And, and although Paul uh, is careful to inform Christians here, am I saying that idols are anything? Um, uh, are we to be intimidated by these idols? No, um, the idols aren't everything, anything, but they sacrifice to demons. Yes. And um, I don't want you to participate, he says, with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. It's the antithesis. It's the religious antithesis. If you're not mm -hmm. drinking the cup of the Lord, whoever you are, you are drinking the cup of demons, yep. of lies, of idolatry. And there is no neutral, secular, middle ground um, that, that isn't inescapably involved in that conflict and within that crisis. And um, yes, I, I wanted to point out that Diwali itself is not some sort of harmless um, uh, lighting of candles um, in its certainly in its meaning and origin mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. uh, and it's an invocation of demon gods mm. it's an invocation of Lashmi in the the, the the at least the main one there, there right. are ver different versions of it in India uh, one of them has to do with uh, with Krishna um, another uh, in the in the uh, Indian uh, subcontinent, um, has to do with, um, let me just turn it up here because off the top of my head I can't remember. Um, I think uh, Narakasura. Narakasura, that's the, um, that's right, that's the, uh, that's Krishna's defeat of uh, uh, Narakasura. Um, but in um, in the Bengal version, it's the goddess Kali that's being worshipped. Oh, okay. So right. they're not all the yeah. same, but um, the dominant one is, uh, is uh, Lashmi, She's the goddess of wealth. She's she's the wife of Vishnu mm. uh, in Hindu uh, tradition, and um, she is born rising from a churning ocean of milk. She's she's always sculpted, seated in uh, on a lotus and holding blossoms in her hand. And um, the the in Hindu mythology, there's a, there's this row between gods and demons over who's going to possess this um, this goddess. And uh, the Diwali is about invocating um, the, the presence of these 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 beings, um, and of course that's not all with with Hinduism. When it comes to if you're going to if you're going to profess Hinduism, then part of that uh, profession is a is a fundamental belief in the caste system, right? And the reason that's mm. so fundamental, and there are there are basically five castes from the untouchables to the priestly Brahmin class. And uh, it's 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 absolutely fundamental to Hinduism because these castes are said to have emerged from the very body of Brahma, which is the ultimate concept of divinity, Brahma, in Hinduism, and the various aspects of Brahma's body, so-called, because because Brahma is sort of a kind of ultimate uh, abstract being, mm. but depicted as having a body. Um, the castes emerge from the body of ultimate being. So 
which is hugely significant for social order, which is why the caste system is embedded in the very names of uh, Hindus. Mm. Um, the the name will indicate the caste within the social order from which they're from. Actually, interestingly enough, the, the uh, Rishi Sunak married a high caste Hindu, but his own caste is hidden from the public. It's a, huh. it's a source of great discussion uh, among those interested in that. But because, but just like with the Greeks, the social order reflects ultimate reality. So in Hinduism, the social order of Hinduism is, is there to reflect ultimate reality, which is Brahma, and the castes come from the body of Brahma. So uh, you, the, this, 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 this question of worship, um, can't, we can't be indifferent to it as Christians, and we can't be indifferent to it in public life, especially when you've got public celebration of these festivals. And even if in, and I think it's very much the case in Rishi Sunak's case, that it's denuded of its real meaning, and perhaps we'll comment on why in a moment, um, it is nonetheless important that we distance ourselves from the cup of demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we, we, we cannot have a fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness between human beings made in the image of God and uh, to reflect that image and to obey his law, righteousness, and a denial that human beings are created in the image of God but are actually emerge from the body of Brahma in a, a variety of, of different castes in an endless cycle of reincarnation, don't forget, which is, again, fundamental to the Hindu, uh, Hindu worldview. So... These are not things to which we can be indifferent mm-hmm. because, as you said, they highlight the radical nature of the antithesis. It's true worship or idolatry. It's the cup of demons or the cup of Christ, and there isn't anywhere in between. Right. And this uh, like th- this matters f- uh, primarily for how we live, how human beings live. Yeah, I, I think I think most of our audience knows this, but it's worth mentioning. You know, if uh, if your whole Bible consisted of those two passages in Corinthians that I just read, and as you've accurately said that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, you could get the impression that these are equal and opposing forces, mm-hmm. which is, uh, of course, not the case. You know, worship of, worship of demons, wor- uh, false worship, idolatry, is you siding with the losers. Mm-hmm. Like, the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent mm-hmm. and they like to uh to offer false worship to offer worship to anything but the true god is to self-consciously and deliberately go off with the losing side right uh, another way of putting that would be we must never forget that we have the thesis mm-hmm. and this is the anti-thesis it, it, it is always um there but therefore parasitic right on yep. god's thesis god is the author of creation he has a law for creation that uh word for creation holds and the forces of darkness are always trying to overturn to distort to mar to to um, misrepresent to uh, blur that reality uh hence darkness rather than walking in the light mm-hmm you stumble around in the darkness because there is a blurring, there is an obfuscation, there is an attempt to lead people away from the thesis in terms of the antithesis. But the antithesis, the antithesis in itself and alone is nothing. 
Right. There's no originality to it. There's no creative power to it in the in any original sense. There is only it's like a virus in the body. It's 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 like a, a, a um, you know if, if salvation and sin or the orders of you know the the thesis and the antithesis the redemption or the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are like health and disease to the body. Uh, and the body though is made and designed by God and is governed by his law and disease is always that it's it's a parasite it's viral it's an it's an attack on the on God's order right and what has been made crystal clear as you rightly put it in in the scriptures and in the gospel is that God is absolutely committed to his creation and he has not abandoned it and he is redeeming it and there was no original yin yang right no original yeah. ultimate power of darkness or ultimate chaos over against God there was only in the beginning God right, and his yeah. creation order. And then the rebellion or the disobedience of that uh, creation order in the form of man and, of course, of angels uh, who, try, who are then alienated from God and then seek to try and alienate God's order from him. Um, but Christ, the true Adam, the last Adam, who we've celebrated his incarnation, um, is the one who comes to restore the creation as the true gardener of uh, creation as the one who is confused for the gardener in the resurrection garden garden because he's doing the gardening um, and giving us a beautiful picture of um, our purpose as culture makers in God's creation and uh, Christ has stripped all these demons that we're talking about principality and power of its authority and he's and he's made an open spectacle of it, of them, says Paul. That he has um, put them to shame uh, at the cross, and then he's triumphed over them. And then he leads captivity captive. He leads the captives in his train. And so, the process of history now, since the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus and his and his session at the right hand of God, is the bringing of all things into subjection to him. But that, but that subjection happens only kicking and screaming, right? Yeah. Uh, because the antithesis is yeah. still at work, and he's the father of lies, and that's his weapon now. Yeah. Lies. That's why Paul says these gods are nothing; these idols are nothing. They're demons. But I don't want you to drink the cup of demons. That's right. And Jesus would not allow his message to be proclaimed by demons. Christians are often baffled by the fact that when um, demons cried out of people in the Gospels, "You are the Son of God. You are yeah. the Holy One." Jesus told them to be silent. That's right, yeah. Why silence what? the demons who are, who are declaring the truth? Because we're not going to drink the cup of God. It's, the Holy Spirit cannot be revealed by an evil spirit. Mm. Not truly. Yeah. And we cannot yeah. be, partake with demons and with the Holy Spirit. And so that, uh, that, that distinction um, is, is, is all important. And recognizing that we are on the victor's side. Yeah. That that we we are seated today in heavenly places with Christ, and He has dominion over all things, and we have been given, as His co-workers, Scripture says, a ministry of reconciliation. To participate in what Christ is doing is, of course, the privilege of the of the Christian life. Yeah, that's great, Joe. Uh, I want to uh, I want to wrap up uh, by circling back to uh, some of the areas where we began. And we, we talked about the, uh, the vestigial or nominal faith uh, 
both on the Christian side and uh, on the uh, the Hindu side, um, we we don't want as as Christians we don't want a nominal Christian culture. We want a a robust and God honoring, faithful, joyful Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Not all, not many of us comparatively are elected officials and policymakers, but all of us are leaders in our homes and families, schools, workplaces, wherever it, we, it may be. Uh, how do we how do we work uh, with what we have to to establish a Christian culture that uh, that avoids this tendency towards nominalism? Mm-hmm. Yes, this whole uh, nominalism piece is interesting because when the, um, the the census came out, there were of course those that said, "Well, this is a good thing." Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know, because we're shedding this sort of, um, you know, Christian culture illusion and the nominalism is disappearing and this is all a good thing. And, um, of course, a lot of those people are well-meaning because they are committed to the importance of Christian conversion and people coming to know the Lord Jesus personally. Um, but with that comes a radical underestimation of the significance of Christian culture. And, um, uh, Rishi Sunak is a very good example of this, actually. Hmm. Um, and uh, by all accounts, he is, I think, a much more um, moral man than his previous boss, Boris Johnson. Hmm. Um, he, uh, who, of course, was uh, not a Christian, um, although he would have doubtless professed a nominal right christian like yeah. a, like he probably would have identified as you know church of england or something right. yeah that's um, the box he would tick the box he would tick on a census but uh uh sunak um seems to be respected he's got integrity uh he um in many respects would be indistinguishable from um a in his political life a um a conservative mp who professes Christian faith, mm-hmm. um, and um, he's a respectable individual, and I'm sure he will serve with dignity and integrity throughout his tenure. Um, and that's significant. Uh, why is that significant? Because actually, um, Rishi Sunak, the, the Prime Minister, was suckled not at the breast of Lashkmi in Britain, of some demon goddess, but actually on the vestiges of a Christian order. That's right. He went to Winchester College, a prestigious Christian school. Hmm. And he's in his 40s now, so this would have been, you know, 30 years ago or more, which, again, those colleges were much more still distinctly Christian than they are today. Hmm. He then went to Oxford University. Well, the the motto of Oxford University is the Lord is my light. The the, the colleges carry the name, all Christian names. Um, It's a, it's a, a Christian... Church of England institution. They have each college has private chaplaincies. Um, he would have been nurtured in all of that, and then he, I think, he went to California as well, and was at Stanford, where you've got the Memorial Church. It's an it was a non denominational Christian institution, and it has the mm. Memorial Church right at the center of it. And so wherever Rishi went, he was surrounded by Christian culture. He was surrounded by a a broadly Christian education. And in his political life, he's been surrounded by a Christian constitution. And what that has done is that has corralled, shaped, molded a professing Hindu uh, into essentially having a broadly Christianized worldview, Um, uh, at least in practice, 
a broadly Christianized practice. So on the one hand, he's lighting candles at Diwali. I suggest that that is much like, for him, Christian uh, um, Britons or Canadians, the majority of them lighting candles and having turkey and giving presents at Christmas. It's been denuded of its real substance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For the most part, I think we'd have to admit that, that for the majority of Canadians or Brits at the um, Christmas season, happy holidays, as is often said in Canada, yeah. you know, the real significance of, of, of Christmas is, is vanishing away um, for many of them. Um, and, um, you know, I'd be very interested, actually, to sit down and have a conversation with Rishi Sunak to even see what his knowledge, the depth of his knowledge of Hinduism actually is. Hmm. Um, but regardless of what, whatever the depth of his knowledge of, of, of Hindu uh, beliefs are, they've been so watered down in practice and they've been so um, denuded of their uh, original clothing mm -hmm. that um, Rishi Sunak, to all intents and purposes, is acting as a Christianized man in a conservative, in a conservative party in a nation with a Christian constitution, um, participating in all the public events of state that have a Christian character. Um, and so he doesn't represent a clear and present danger in some way to the to the uh, British state um, because that's the product of Christian culture. Christian culture um, has, as I say, mold, shaped it, corralled his life that um, he ends up with a broadly Christianized practice. Mm -hmm. um, now, I say that that is why Christian culture, not just Christian conversion, are so important because it shapes people for the good. That's right. Would we want a British Prime Minister who was today promoting the caste system? Or we're still promoting sati? Right. That we return yeah, to practices of throwing yeah. widows on the funeral pyres of their husbands to be burned. Um, is, uh, is, which was outlawed actually in, in, uh, in British India um, way back in the 19th century. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, well, it was William Carey, the missionary, who it was Carey's law. To, Put it for put it forward to to get rid of the practice. That's right, um, and uh, that 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 was finally realised in the in the nineteenth in the nineteenth century. Let me um, we'll just do a little cut here. Um, I'd like to find that. Um, oh, here we are. Let me just cut in there. Yeah. So if we think of something like um, Carey's Law. Uh, in in India, um, you had the um, you had the abandoning at that point of some of the most um, uh, abhorrent practices in in, in India. It was uh, in all jurisdictions actually of British India from December fourth, eighteen twenty nine, that um, the Governor Lord General William Bentick uh, outlawed that practice. But today. In India, you still have eight of its, I think, 29 states that mm. have anti-conversion laws. You have um, a, a profoundly uh, um, problematic treatment of women, of the elderly, mm -hmm. of the sick and disabled. It's, it's inherent within the both the caste system and in the idea of reincarnation. And... Uh, the, re the reason today that, you know, I'll be controversial, I'd say the reason today that India is one of the world's largest democracies and has made the progress that it has was because of the presence of Christian missionaries. Right. Um, and because of work like, of, of, the, of, of men like William 
um, Wilberforce um, and William Carey, um, who were promoting the entrance of missionaries into a British India at the time and the work that those missionaries did in India. That's the value of Christian culture, ending practices like sati. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in in Britain, you know, we don't have a prime minister pursuing um, traditional Hindu practices or traditional understanding of social order because he's been Christianized. So we mustn't dismiss or, or overlook the tremendous value of Christian culture. But as you say, we wouldn't want a purely nominal Christian culture mm-hmm where Christianity is professed in name but isn't really um, embraced at the root of our being, where true worship to Christ isn't really followed, where obedience to God's law is, is little more than um, uh, a, a, a cultural habit um, rather than of, of root heart commitment. Right. Um, and uh, the way I think in which we work against deterioration into a nominalism is that we need to be distinctly Christian and thoroughly biblical. Nominalism, uh, as we know it, that is a, a Christian in name only, accepting certain, some of the, the trappings, the forms of Christianity, identifying with it but not actually truly living it, is the product of a synthesis. Nominalism is the synthesis of secularism and Christianity. It's, 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 it's synthesizing the ideas that... Um, I can I can identify with my history, a kind of conservative view of history. I can identify with the constitutional arrangements because they're kind of good. They've proved to be practical and useful, and so I'm and um these these things have proven proven their value. So we're going to maintain or keep what has value, but we're going to effectively strip them of their original power, the root of their power. So. Secularization, nominalism is the product of a process of secularization in society where you want to keep the forms, the branches, the fruit, but you don't really want to maintain the root. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that, of course, is the struggle for every generation of Christians, is that you can have a family that maintains certain Christian forms, but where the root uh, is, is, is missing. And eventually, if that root is damaged or destroyed, the fruit will disappear. That's right. And that is the, that's the problem. For a time, it's like liberal theology, isn't it? It's like liberalism within the churches. Those churches, the mainline churches that went liberal at the latter part of the 19th century and ended through the early part of the 20th century, they survived for a while. Uh, to some degree, in the early 20th century, they seem to thrive. But by the 1960s and then by the 1970s, it's all over, baby. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, to, and today they're increasingly real estate boards. The fruit could not be maintained in the absence of the root. So nominalism is a synthesis reality. It's, 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 the, it's the reality of a secularizing culture, um, which is trying to blend the 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 the... the the forms of Christianity, but with the substantive commitments of secularism, uh, of, uh, of, of a denial of the power of the word of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the only way to avoid that in our, fo- in our ha- homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches, is to develop what we endlessly talk about as, as the Ezra Institute and on this show, a distinctly Christian view of reality, mm-hmm. a distinctly biblical understanding of life and the world that is rooted in the heart 
and the heart is not our emotions, but it's the center of our being, and that every activity in our lives, whether it's our civil life, our, you know, and cultural life, our vocational life, our family life, our church life, are all outgrowths of that heart, religious ground motive, that root commitment, that where the Holy Spirit is active at the core of our being to transform us and bring us into conformity to his word, out of which we develop a distinctly Christian mind, a Christian view of everything, and are committed to a biblical understanding of life, not simply one where Jesus and the word of God is cloistered or sequestered within one small area of life called the church and Bible study, and where my personal piety and my personal relationship with God is the only thing that matters. That's actually what calls forth nominalism. That's right. Radical privatization of the faith, the ecclesiasticization as well of our faith and of the word is what calls forth the nominalism that the pietists who are opposed to Christian culture have created. And that's the irony. And actually... Um, we can be thankful to the Lord that uh, that a man, the the de very decent man, Rishi Sunak, mm -hmm. has was so exposed to the, the remnants of a Christianized culture uh, that today um, his professed Hinduism is um, is not a significant threat in the in the immediate political sense. Of course, there's spiritual issues there, and we need to be praying for Rishi Sunak's salvation because you cannot be transferred from darkness to light through Diwali, That's right. but only through the Lord Jesus Christ. So. We, that's vital. But the reason that he is the man that he is today, by God's grace, is Christian culture. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, which wouldn't be there if the pietists uh, and the cultural retreatists had their way. Yeah. I think uh, this, not, not to de-emphasize personal conversion, uh, as, you've, as you've said, but I think a lot of the times we, we neglect or we don't think about the the benefits of Christianization that are less than salvific in the, uh, to the individual yeah. person. Yes, uh, that's, that's critical because we have tended to reduce and truncate the gospel to personal salvation. So if it doesn't have to do with somebody's salvific experience, like that they have yeah. just personally committed their lives to the Lord, yeah. that somehow Christian culture has no value or the influence of the Christian faith upon them has no value. Right. But of course, that can't possibly be true. Um, the reality of the kingdom and rule and reign of God, Christ as the ruler of the kings of the earth, does not mean that every person on earth is going to be a Christian. Yeah. We're not universalists. Yeah. We don't believe that every single person is going to be born again. Um, and uh, in fact, it would be impossible to have a truly Christian church um, if you said that to be a Christian church, they've got to be, everybody's got to be born again. And you couldn't really have a Christian family if you said that everybody in that family, an extended family, has to be personally born again. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is, is the kingdom of God and the power of what Christ did at the cross in terms of the work of redemption has a power that goes beyond personal conversion and shapes and influences the world in terms of bringing everything into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that may not be always willingly, and it may not always be through heart, a, uh, an actual heartfelt and heart-grounded personal surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, every knee will bow. That's right. And every yeah. tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That isn't a, a statement by Paul, and of course that was one of the early hymns of the church there in Philippians 2. That wasn't a statement of universalism. Yeah. That wasn't a yeah. statement that Paul's saying there, that the entire world and the, uh, is going to be born again. He's saying that the lordship of Jesus Christ, every knee is going to bend and submit to him, and every tongue, every mouth is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they are personally converted or not. Right. And uh, there, that's, and that's the reality of the kingdom of God. Um, the rule and reign of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can be in a nation that however feebly, however weak, it's Christian com- confession. There the kingdom of God can be active. There we can still talk about a Christian culture, a Christian nation, even when not everybody's converted in it. If there is a subjection, nonetheless, to the, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, if there is a recognition in people's living that there is a standard above them, and that, uh, and where we see God's law, righteous law, godly law, and godliness being promoted in a culture, we can see even Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists shaped, molded, fashioned, so that there is peace and justice and righteousness in a culture, even when not everybody personally knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that has to be valuable. <laughs> it was true in Israel. That's right. Because there was the stranger yeah. and the alien, remember? Yep. That when you looked at Israel, it's one law for the stranger and the alien as well as the, 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 the Israelite. That's right. You didn't have to be personally taking sacrifices to the tabernacle or to the temple um, and personally worshipping Yahweh to be a member of that nation. Yeah. But you absolutely needed to recognize the authority of God. Yeah. Um, and... Only those who have a radical denial of the importance of both creation and culture will say that doesn't have value in itself. Does it not have value in and of itself, for example, that the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade? That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But they weren't all converted, so what does it matter? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yeah. and the fact that, you know, abortions in Texas uh, after that dropped off a cliff... Right, And yet most yeah. of those people who've not had an abortion because of that law will not be Christian. Does it not have value in and of itself that those young lives have been born into the world now? Amen. So yeah. that's where I think the fatal error is made by those who criticize Christian culture. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's excellent, Joe. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here. It's been a great conversation. From all of us here at the podcast for Cultural Reformation, this is a special Christmas episode, so I'm going to switch up our regular salutation, and I'll uh, just leave you with the reminder that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. May God be glorified. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll see you again shortly. Amen.